All right. Are you ready out there in Nebraska? Yes. Well, let me start that over because I want to start the theme song. Do so. it over the theme song. Right. Cicadas coming in on the recording here. It's a cicada year. It's that time. John. Are you ready to podcast in Nebraska? Apparently, I am prepared. <laughs> Luke, are you ready to podcast in we Kentucky? Are, we're ready. There's and drums everywhere. <laughs> five, four, three, two. Welcome back, everybody, to the Savage Cromcast, season seven, episode four. The Book of Ibon. I'm Josh. I'm Luke. I am Jonathan. And we are the unbegotten source laying vast and swollen and yeasty amid the vaporing slime of the potosphere. And we are the Cromcast. Nice, man. That's some CAS for you. <laughs> you just got Smithian up in here. Welcome back, everybody. <laughs> I don't know how to sound yeasty. Uh, I think it's musty. It's musty. It's yeah. moist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Little, well, I, mean, uh, I don't know how to sound like it. How do you sound yeasty? Yeah, I sound a little. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. You stopped. I don't us. know. You just took it from PG thir- like PG to like PG thirteen. One more step, and we're in the R rated yeah. territory. We should go record a bourbon vat preparing. That's yeasty, right? It is yeasty. Yeah. So yeah. at Maker's Mark, I don't know about other places, but uh, Ashley and I took a Maker's Mark tour back. I don't know. It was in the winter time or, or like early spring. And they'll let you just put your your fingers down into the 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 what are they called the vats like the um yeah like the, the big, brewer's beer mm-hmm. like yeah it's pretty cool yeah that's why Maker's Mark tastes terrible no <laughs> everybody's fingers in there Maker's <laughs> Mark doesn't taste terrible and actually the forty six is pretty good I'm a, I'm uh, a big Maker's Mark, Mark convert you're a Maker's Mark Mark I'm, I'm marked I like I. <laughs> It is fun though. Like if you get the chance to do the, uh, like one of the ones that are early on, it's fairly fairly banana and, and yeasty, and then you get towards the, like you get another one, and it's 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 hotter, and you can definitely taste the alcohol. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's like oh, this beer is like super super mild and bananas, and this one's not. <laughs> yeah, uh, my favorite part of the Wild Turkey tour was when they let you drink the White Dog. Oh, do they do that there? They used to. I don't know. Maybe they don't anymore. But it was like in this glass lantern thing. Yeah. Spigot on the front. Uh Uh-huh. Cup your hands under it. And they're like, go ahead. That's awesome. (laughs) McConaughey. McConaughey's there. And he says, all right. (laughs) Go ahead and drink. Drink. Get ready for the white dog in your mouth. They have have the same sort of setup at Maker's Mark. And I've done the ladle thing there uh, where you can. You can. And and that was pretty fun. That's pretty fun too. If you can do like the like at least at Makers, I don't know how it is at Wild Turkey, but they've got the the two different stills, so you can get like the first pass and like the third pass maybe or something. Mm. Uh, so you can kind of taste like how how it's slightly more refined. I mean, it's still like or oily and like cor- like corny, uh, but it's kind of cool with the with the with the Wild Turkey. How is it set up at Wild Turkey? They took us through the vat rooms and we got to. Do you hear that? That's the cicadas, dude. Yeah, the cicadas are. It's, it's are the, they're it's, nigh. It's the relaxing tone. The relaxing tones. We're out here on the uh, the back porch, uh, here in the the, the hot <laughs> southern summer of, of Kentucky. Right. <laughs> McConaughey's here. 
wild turkey no they take you through the vat rooms and you get to try like you just kind of described and then at the end of the tour before you go back downstairs was the white dog thing and then you get to do the actual tasting yummer this uh, episode of the Cromcast is brought to you by the Kentucky Bourbon Trail and Heritage. <laughs> if you fill out your passport, you get a free T-shirt after you mail it in to the Kentucky government. Is that who does that? Uh, I guess, bourbon or board? the the Bourbon Trail, like LLC or whatever it is. Maybe I don't know. So that's our pseudo sponsor for the evening, right? The Kentucky state government. Yeah, we love them. <laughs> they, right. <laughs> um, so let's talk about what we're actually drinking. John, do you actually have wild turkey out there in Nebraska? I am actually drinking something that I brought back with me from the state of Indiana when I went and visited over the 4th of July period. There is a series of stores there called Meyer. Perhaps some of you are familiar with the, the store listening out there. I know they have them down in Lexington. And they had Michters on sale. Okay. Oh, look like, at you. Fancy. Yeah, they had it on sale, like down $14. And I said, I'm going to try that because I never have before. And it's pretty tasty, pretty smooth, a little spicier than I had anticipated, but very good. So, if you've never tried it before. I've never had it. So can you give us some some bottle notes and some tasting notes? Like what, uh, what Michters is this and like what's the proof, all that kind of good stuff? Uh, I left the bottle upstairs, oh, unfortunately. <laughs> oh, no. It's just the regular mixtures. Okay. Uh, it's a weeded bourbon, right? I don't know. I've never, I've never, I've never partaken. Uh-oh. Uh, we were, we were doing so good with our bourbon knowledge, and now we're all just falling Mictors, apart. U.S. 1 Kentucky straight bourbon, uh, typically up in the 45 to $50 range, it would appear, and I got it for like 30 And That's my deal, tasting man. notes would be... Uh, bourbony, very bourbony. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> well, do you get the vanilla? Do you get some burn? It was, do you get? It was kind of vanilla-y, but then it kind of had that same hotness that Buffalo Trace can have. Okay, you know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say it was a smoother version of Buffalo Trace. Okay, and yeah. is it made by Buffalo Trace? It's made by Bomberger's Distillery. Yeah. Okay. Very cool. What about you, good sir? Well, we've got a mix of things. Uh, Luke had some mead that we started with. A, True a, enough. An apple sizer. Yeah, we had a sizer. We drank the last bottle of that. That's gone. Uh, I just bottled, uh, I guess it's like actually like an, a raisin apple wine. So it's just your standard like, uh, nice. well, no, it's, it's, it's like a Belgian yeast strain. So I cooked, I, I fermented it super hot, like at the 95 degree mark out above the garage. But this was like, I put a butt ton of raisins in there and I sort of chopped them up in the blender. So it's, it's super raisiny. So if you get to try some of this, Josh, it's, it's, uh, it's pretty, it's pretty earthy. I think what I'm, I'm, I think, I don't think, I think I'm off the raisin bandwagon for the, for the apple wine. I wanted to try it once and see if it added anything. Uh, but it's, it's just like an apple wine with a, with like a, a Belgian ale yeast. It's pretty good. And then, and then Josh brought the, brought the big guns. I've got some four roses, but we can't call it yellow label anymore, evidently, because the label does not appear to be yellow. No, they changed it, dude. They changed it. They changed the bottle too. It's it's like a wider bottle. the The neck is wider. Certainly, the mouth is wider. It's got a big old cork there. Wasn't it a a cap? It was, was it a, a screw cap. cap? Yeah. yeah, because yeah, yeah. So four roses. The other like the small the small batch and the the single barrels have like the wood cap like this. So I think they're trying to class this up like the other ones. Mm-hmm. But it's still just yeah, it's like they're, it, yeah, I don't know. 
it's it's like your your solid like uh, uh, it averages about eight points a game, gets ten rebounds. You you can count on it. A strong assists. Strong assists with the other the other things. That averages a double double. Yeah. yeah. Wouldn't you say so? The kind of backup power forward you want. Yep. Exactly. Well, cabinet. Yeah. Absolutely. And if you visit the Four Roses Distillery on the Kentucky Bourbon Trail, it is among the most unique in its design and its beauty with its Spanish architecture stucco. and stucco. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I haven't been to that one. I guess I've been to, to Buffalo Trace, Maker's Mark, and Woodford at this point. Buffalo Trace seceded from the Buffalo or from the Bourbon Trail though. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. Why did they do that? They got I guess because the they do it on their own. Uh, they don't need everyone else. Yep. Got it. Their bourbon do they get tasting, that pappy money? Is that who makes pappy? Yeah. yeah. Uh, their bourbon tasting is actually pretty generous. But Makers That's is true. too. Yeah, I like the I like the the setup of the Makers. I just took my uh, father-in-law to do uh, the the Bourbon Heritage Center, which is like Heaven Hills thing. And their tour and their tastings are pretty uh, pretty standardized. I mean, you get like half ounce pours of like the stuff that they're doing, and it's all the the tour itself. If you're ever going to do that, like the Mash Bill tour, kind of kind of stunk. It was very very generic, <laughs> but uh, the tastings themselves were pretty cool because you did get to te- uh, taste like a, a variety of stuff, uh, and you get to wander around afterwards after the tour is over, which is kind of unique at least compared to the other two like woodford um you know they bust you down right right yeah. to the to the rick houses and and uh you get to see all that but you don't really get to wander around unfettered and at makers uh you you are unsupervised for a, right. a good bit of time so that's pretty cool yeah so you can go back and get photos and stuff like that you don't have to worry about it like on the tour man if you're gonna do one for sure i would say makers is the you get the full thing like at four roses you don't get the full process uh at heaven hill like the bourbon heritage center you don't get the full process at makers you get the full story and it's a like a a flagship like prestigious like old school bourbon and it's all picturesque like you get to see it all beautiful and you could do makers and heaven hill on the same day yeah that that would be a good idea and and then have dinner. There's this tavern. I can't think of the name of it in Bardstown. That is uh, in a, a really really old building that has some some pretty spectacular uh, dinners on their on their menu. And yeah, just you can as, make a day of it. And if you're at Heaven Hill, uh, Willet is literally like a stone's throw. Like you can throw the softball down the hill, and then it rolls down towards the creek, and then you go up the draw, and Willet is like right there. And we didn't do the full tour there, but you can do like a $5 just straight up tasting and you get to do t- two different tastings and you get to keep your little Glencairn. Oh, nice. And they had like, uh, not like an open, like taste everything, but they had all of their standard offerings as well as one of their like better rise. And I actually didn't taste it. I tasted like one, of, like two of the bourbons just to get a feel for some of the Willet stuff. But the $5 tasting plus the Glencairn was cool. And like my father-in-law and me it was basically us and the uh the the bartender dude that was doing the tasting nice i mean it was like it was cool it was like at one like 12 15 or 1 15 <laughs> there was nobody else there but yeah it was it was a lot of fun and it was super super casual so Man. for five bucks you can't beat that no yeah that's awesome when we open our distillery can we integrate the the tour and the tasting together like everybody gets a ball jar half filled 
with their preference of bourbon or moonshine and they walk around with drinking it with a crazy straw. That would be a pretty fun idea, man. Like yeah. you start out the tour with, you know, bourbon, rye, white dog, and you get get something to carry around with you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's cool. Uh, a little uh a little flask or something? Commemorative yeah. uh tiny flask. I like the ball jar idea. I do too, yeah. <laughs> and and they're probably uh a lot cheaper. Yeah. You gotta that's save on that overhead. And that's all like that's pretty hip. For sure. <laughs> it's it's, like it's renewable. Pretty hip. <laughs> it's we are whis- hip. It's whiskey talk. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. It's you didn't know, but we've uh transitioned into a bourbon podcast. Surprise. <laughs> all right, rescue us, Josh. Well, next we've got to talk about one thing. One thing. That one always makes me think about like we're we're flying through the cosmos like in our freaking starship that's powered by bourbon. <laughs> and we're we're on an adventure. We we're seeking on, we're seeking one thing. We run on bourbon, <laughs> right, John? You got something That's to right. share with the class? I do have something to share with the class. I was trying to decide between a couple of things, but I ended up picking a book that I just finished here recently. It's titled "Priceless: How I Went Undercover to Rescue the World's Stolen Treasures." It's by Robert Whitman, who's a former FBI agent who was the founder of the FBI Art Crime Team. And his authorial assistant, John Schiffman, who I assume kind of like sanded off the edges of his storytelling abilities. And it's just a series of stories about how he got started in art crime, which is a way bigger deal than I had ever anticipated. Hmm. And how he kind of developed the art crime team within the FBI. The United States apparently doesn't take it very seriously. And other nations like France and Italy, they have like whole departments within their national police services that are dedicated to protecting artistic treasures. But it was just him and a few other dudes for a while here in America that covered like everything that ever got stolen from museums. And it's just really cool series of stories and a lot of cool undercover talk. I'm kind of surprised that he published it under his real name because... It definitely sounds like he ticked off some real deal dudes who would probably have him killed if they could. And uh, hmm. I just liked it. If you're kind of into that sort of heisty fiction, I think that it's an interesting nonfiction version of that. Like the Thomas Crown Affair. Yeah, he references that several times about how that's a very idealized version of the criminal that he was chasing. He pointed out that almost everybody that he ever nabbed was just some schlub that (laughs) either worked for the museum as a janitor for like 20 years and then decided to take one thing and steal it or was somebody that worked for the museum for 13 years and over that course of those 13 years pilfered like $2 million worth of Civil War artifacts. Oh, wow. Like a little thing here, a little thing there. Yeah. They never noticed until one like really important sword got stolen. Um, because they hadn't done a proper inventory in a while. Mm. So there was just lots of schlubs like that, that kind of wandered into the theft rather than, you know, Pierce Brosnan. <laughs> Dude, Pierce or, Brosnan is a total schlub. 
You think he's a schlub? He's a total schlub. He's a stud, dude. Wasn't a uh, KZT in that? Or wait, wait, KZJ. Catherine Zeta-Jones, wasn't she in that? You're thinking... Oh, wait, what's... Oh, no, what do I think? Are you thinking of Entrapment? Yes. (laughs) With Sean Connery? Where she does, like, the slinky butt moves under the lasers? In my mind, I was seeing that, but with Pierce Brosnan. Yeah. They're of a type, (sighs) like, and of a time, those movies. Oh, man, who's in the... It stars... Oh no, dude! Rene Russo. Rene oh, Russo. Yeah, okay. I was thinking Rene, and I could. I was like stuck on Zellweger, okay. and it wasn't her. Yeah, Rene Russo. Uh, an old man's. Uh, Rene well, Zellweger. then there's the original version, which stars Steve McQueen and Faye Dunaway. <laughs> I've never Ooh, seen that. Yeah, dude. I've never seen, I that, seen one. that either. Maybe we need to I'm do more a, like that, Steve though. McQueen. Yeah, Faye, yeah. Need, Faye Dunaway. Maybe we need to do <laughs> do a, a heist season, like dude, a pulpy heist. I would love to no. talk about Bonnie and Clyde. That would be. Awesome sauce. That would be. <laughs> don't don't use my nipples like that, Josh. Oh, that way we can watch the classic Thomas Crown affair. And not That's my one and thing. not Steve McQueen or Faye. <laughs> Man, Is I'm it gonna, Steve McQueen? Guess what? I'm going to be a downer. <laughs> it's never mind what I was going to say. <laughs> we were all all uh, excited, no jazzed, jazzed. <laughs> And now I'm going to talk about Sharp Objects on HBO. <laughs> uh, as of the time of this recording, like the third episode has come out, and I think it's called Fix. Uh, this this show is pretty awesome. I'm loving it. It's total, like, uh, it's not Southern Gothic. It's like Midwestern Gothic. It's like, it's like Bruce Springsteen, Nebraska, instead of like William Faulkner, because it's like Midwestern, like Southeastern Missouri kind of thing. Uh, but it's... It's small town, gothic, and noir, and, like, addiction. And it's it's really good, and Amy Adams is killing it, and it's, like, a an HBO show, so it's got lots of lots of uh, production value behind it, and the, the scripts are killer, and I think it's, like, a sister to True Detective. It's not nearly as, like, cosmic with its story. It's a bit more intimate, and it's all about, like, family and just screwing up and not being able to get out of that cycle. Uh, but I'm loving it. It's, it's really, really good. And, you know, I, I did read the, the book at some point a couple of years ago. Uh, it seems like this series to me at least is better than the book because it's a bit more fleshed out and it's, it's just killer. The cinematography is really good. Julian Flynn. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So gone girl. Yep. I was surprised to, when they announced that this was going to be a series, but I guess now that you, I think it's a, I think it's probably it's got to be a mini, a mini series, like a ten episode yeah. thing, and, and it's done. Like the, like the, the big little lies or got it. little big lies, whatever that is. It's pretty, it's pretty rela- little liars. Pretty, yeah, <laughs> it's related. <laughs> it, it it at least has that same director on the the front end. Uh, I think it's delved out. I'm not totally for sure, but yeah, there's the same sort of reliance on music is is there. This show, I mean, Led Zeppelin within, like, video, like, art has been a fairly limited thing. Uh, But this show, like, encapsulates and pulls in so much badass Led Zeppelin that it just kills me. There's, like, it's just Amy Adams, like, driving around, listening to, like, the in the evening, and it's just killer. It's just, (laughs) it's so, uh, it, it really is cosmic, like. In, in terms of like what's going on with a specific character. So yeah, it's cool. Hmm. Led Zeppelin seems to be letting people use their music a lot more now. I don't remember hearing their music at all in 
much pop culture stuff, but then they were in Thor Ragnarok, and now it sounds like they're in this. Well, yeah. Uh, the first thing I remember hearing a Led Zeppelin song in was uh, uh, School of Rock. Like that was the thing that they sort of started it. Do like a that, like, song. like immigrant oh, song, and that yeah. was like immigrant song. Like yeah. was one of one of if not like the first in, instance of that being used within. You're right. You know something else. They used cashmere in the the X Men, not first class, but the sequel. I can't remember. Maybe it was the Apocalypse one that wasn't very good. But yeah. they, the, yeah, the, the cashmere was the the for, hook for that preview. Yeah. For the the better or worse, you see your Buddha, your Buddha, your Buddha on the side of the road. You know what to do. Don't meet your eyes. <laughs> it's cool. I mean, I, I I totally think that that kind of thing should be used. And in this case, I think it really, at least in the last episode, the importance of music and the way that that's like an escape mechanism for for the main character, the the the, the, the principal character, Amy Adams. It's really. It's really pretty personal, especially if you're you're a fan of music, just the way that it sort of plays out. But it it adds layers to the story, the way that they're able to use music. It's not just like, oh, they're playing like Black Dog and that's cool. It's there's a reason why there's these recurrent instances of playing music on a phone, you know, in the story. Hmm. Cool. John, have you watched the show or read any of Jillian Flynn's books? I have not, but I'm intrigued. Have you, Luke always has good taste. John, you would love this as a as a noir like a, f- a fan of it. You would you would dig it. I think. I trust you. You've put me on the trail of many awesome things before. Uh, I've I've watched the Gone Girl uh, theatrical adaptation. It's fine. It I like good. it. Yeah. I like. Uh, oh, what's her name? Uh, <laughs> I don't remember. She's crazy in it. Though. Yeah, Ben Affleck. Nope. <laughs> no. I mean, it's it's good. Like like Jillian Flynn's awesome, man. I love the, I don't know. I love the the true crime, true crime sort of like, uh, just easy, accessible, just just dirty sort of psychological thriller. It's it's easy to get into. Yeah. Cool. Carrie right. Coon is that who you Rosamund? No. Pike. Oh yeah, her. Yeah, yeah. But I am a I'm a bigger fan of Carrie Coon. She is like, she's 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 the shiznit. All right, Josh, what do you got? Retro, retro, retro. (laughs) Perfect. Uh, I've been listening to a lot of retro gaming podcasts, and I think my one thing recently was was retro games. Um, And so I want to shout out a couple of podcasts that I've been listening to. Um, First is... Uh, the the stalwart retro knots, a long running retro video game program. Um, everyone who's interested in in Nintendo, Super Nintendo games, Sega, um, not just the games, but like discussions about the production of the games, um, where they fall into like the history of video games. Uh, if you're a video games fan and you're not listening to retro knots, you really should. There's there's just a ton of good content uh, on their various feeds. And you said they've been out for years. Years, at this point, right? Yeah, like more than ten, I think. Um, so retro knots, definitely check them out. Uh, the other is is somewhat newer, but they've been going for a long time too. Uh, and I think I may have mentioned them before. They are uh, watch out for fireballs, um, and. Uh, uh, Gary and Cole uh, dissect in detail various games. They started uh, as a uh, sort of a retro gaming podcast, but then rebuild themselves as a video game club podcast. And they cover newer games like uh, 
the Dishonored franchise, um, which I'm a big fan of. What is that? It's it's a uh, Bethesda series where you play this character named Corvo, and it's a, a stealth game in the vein of like Thief. Okay. Um, and it's it's steampunky in a way, but rather than steam, the the culture, the society uses whale oil. Like the, everything is built on whale oil. Have we? Have you ever talked about this? I've I'm never, not sure. I don't know if I've ever heard you talk about. S- yeah. Cool. So Dishonored is, is a, a freaking awesome game. It's cool. it's uh uh there there's magic. There's um it, it's a first person thing in the the vein of Skyrim, um but it's more constrained. It's not an open world sort of thing. There are levels, okay. and uh, in each level you you can either sneak and like incapacitate guards and and do the objective that you have to do, or you can just kill everybody. Um, <laughs> <laughs> which which ultimately in the long run makes makes the game somewhat harder. Okay. Um and so yeah, uh Cole and Gary cover games, you know, ranging from uh Chrono Trigger to the Final Fantasy series to Resident Evil to uh the Dishonored franchise. Um and so yeah, check out Watch Out for Fireballs and then finally, um my favorite among them, the the Crown Jewel, the Creme de la Creme. Uh, and, and new kids on the retro gaming podcast block. And I've mentioned them before graveyard duck. Um, these guys, uh, Scott and Wes, uh, take a similar approach, I think to us, uh, in that they, they talk about the game. Uh, they talk about the story. They talk about the mechanics, uh, their, their memories playing the game growing up. Uh, how it translates to, uh, you know, how much fun you might have playing it now and that sort of thing. Um, so definitely check out Graveyard Duck. Um, and I would be remiss if I didn't say uh, thank you for uh, mentioning the Chromecast on, on your show, uh, Scott and Wes. That, that was really kind and uh, we appreciate it a lot. Um, that was episode... Um, 31, they discussed an old NES game from 1990 called Deja Vu, which is a text, not a text, but like an adventure game, like a point and click adventure sort of thing. And it is kind of a two fisted pulpy sort of thing that, um, an adventure that you wouldn't be surprised to see sailor Steve Costigan go through. Right on. And, uh, uh, it's it's very Howardian in its scope, and so okay. there, uh, Wes was kind enough to uh, give us a shout out and a plug, and and I just wanted to say thanks for that and return the favor and get everybody um, who's interested in video games um, to to go check out Graveyard Duck and listen to Scott and Wes talk about games from your youth. Cool, man. That was that was a lot of goodness. I just I just scribbled down that episode number, and then I just added <laughs> uh, the other shows to my Stitcher feed. Cool. <laughs> um, and I think I think from uh, Watch Out for Fireballs, I think Cole is from Cincinnati. Okay, which is pretty interesting to hear him talk about. Like every now and then, he drops in, you know, some some thing about like where he's from, and right. it's it's familiar enough because it's close enough um, geographically. That is so. I don't know. It's it's cool. cool. Th- those guys are all cool. Th- those three shows are awesome. Um, and check them all out, uh, especially Graveyard Duck. Cool. And those are three things. We put them all together in a yeasty blob that we refer to as one thing. You got a yeasty blob in the bottom of that bottle. I do. 
I always get a little bit sad at the bottle of the the bottom of the homebrew bottle. Yeah, the, you can't you can't drink it. I mean, you could, yeah. but we, <laughs> you probably shouldn't. <laughs> I got my pinky out. <laughs> I'm not gonna do that. Right. <laughs> All right, guys, we have a monumental task ahead of us because we're talking about three stories by one of the masters of weird fiction, one of the the top three weird tales authors, Clark Ashton Smith. That's right. And we've talked about Smith before on the show. Um, I'm having a hard time. He haunted us one Halloween. He did haunt us one Halloween. um, But I'm having a really hard time remembering the name of the story that we covered. The, The end of the story. Oh, there we go. The vampire one. Yeah. Yep. It was a vampire one. These stories are a little bit different, I think, in tone, in scope. I think so. I mean, they're still pretty dreamlike, and maybe that's a, a consequence. Like, that's just his style, mm-hmm. is to, to write something that might lull you into a uh, a, a weird little, little trip. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, they are different for sure. And it, so I only read two of the three, and I know that you and John read three in total, uh, but the two that I read were were different. Definitely, John. Would you say that these three stories had uh, different tracks, um, laid a different foundation? Are they are they similar? Like, do they overlap in any way? There are themes that definitely overlap amongst all three, but each of them is a different kind of story. I think that one of them reads more like a mythological kind of situation written down. One reads like a good Twilight Zone episode. Okay. And one of them is way more weird talesy, I thought. Okay. Uh, definitely felt like it, it was one of those stories that we're more familiar with. All, all of them I thought were pretty interesting, though. Yeah, they all have interesting aspects to them, for sure. And so the stories we're going to cover tonight are all by Clark Ashton Smith, as, as I mentioned. The Door to Saturn, Ubo Sothla. And the coming of the white worm, Luke. What's the thing that unifies these three stories? Uh, it's the uh, the book of Ibon, as written by Ibon. Yeah, and this is our grimoire for the for the tale here. Uh, at least within the the two that I read, I read the door to Saturn and then Ubo Sathlaw, which are the the first two in sequence that we'll talk about here. Uh, the door to Saturn is actually like a. <laughs> It's an ibonic tale. It's it is an ibonic adventure. It sort of gives you the like this is what happened. He sailed off into the ether and people never saw him again. This mm-hmm. is what happened to that dude. And whereas Ubo Sathlaw is uh, a classic, at least within the sort of pulp uh, horror tropes of like you are uh, dealing with some level of like ancestral sort of like almost reincarnative uh, experiences of someone that you're like a sister or akin to. Mm-hmm. And so, so we kind of get like with that story, the Ubo Sathla story, it's the uh, fellow dis- discovers a curio within a shop, takes it home and then goes on a wild trip kind of story mixed up with, uh, uh, deeper sort of ancestral knowledge. Yeah. So how do we want to approach th- this? Is this is a as I said, this is a, a monumental task. Uh, we're biting off a, a great big hunk of weird tales here. I th- maybe let's talk about what who Ibon is and what his book is. So okay. we're talking about grimoires this season, right? So he apparently has written a whole book of spells 
and different kinds of arcane knowledge that comes to us from the old ones. Ibon is a Hyperborean, so he could fit in well to that uh, cycle of history that Robert E. Howard expounded upon, mm-hmm. I think, in some of his stories. And he is a powerful wizard who worships not the right god, according to his fellow Hyperboreans. Right, Josh? That's right. Yeah. Instead of the, uh, what is she, the elk goddess? Yeah. Y- uh, yeah. Yon. Oh, I've got the wrong story in front of me. <laughs> Yonde. Yonde. I guess. Is that how we want to say it? I kept yeah. thinking of Yondu from uh, Guardians <laughs> of the Galaxy. I'm Mary Poppins, y'all. Uh, yeah, instead of Yonde, who is the popular deity to worship in the uh, the city of, or the, the country of... Um, Muthalon? Muthalon, yeah, sorry. Um, There's lots of made up words in these stories. <laughs> right. Yeah, that was hard. Um, he worships Those are real, Luke. <laughs> uh, they're written down in this book, so they must be real. Uh, he worships uh, Zathakwa, the uh, ancient deity that is uh, toad-like and also sloth-like and also kind of bat-like. Bat-like. That was the part that stuck out to me. Yeah. When I looked up a, an artist rendition of him, he looked very bat-like. Uh, I've and it actually- kind of reminded me of. Did uh, this is a long shot? Did either of you read the DC Metal event that nope. recently occurred? Missed that one. No, uh, it features a god that is interested in Batman, who looks like a bat, and he is sort of trying to break into our universe and is using different kinds of metals in the DC universe to do it. Hmm. And he looks a lot like Yathakwa. Okay, Yathakwa. Um, <laughs> I found a rendering of Zathakwa that uh, Clark Ashton Smith penciled, actually, which is pretty neat. I'll include that in the show notes. What did it look like? Uh, well, let's look them up. So that's that's a rendering by CAS. All right. Yeah. So we've got some, some big ears on either side. Uh, uh, very humanoid features, but he's obviously kind of, uh, kind of hairy, like you would expect a... Uh, a caveman to be, I guess. Cool. Um, and here is a carving that CAS did. Okay. I dig it. Yeah. So we'll add those to the show notes for this episode. So Zathakwa is a, uh, a deity that formerly was worshipped widely, but is is no longer. But He's an old one? I, I think he's an old he's one. He's one of the old ones, yeah. Yeah. So are the old ones the OGs? They're the originals, or do they come after that? In your grimoire repertoire of knowledge. Well, they're the old ones, and then there are the great old ones, right? Okay. And I think that the old ones came prior to the great old ones, but I think people are probably going to add us on Twitter and tell us otherwise. <laughs> Be that as it may, Ibon is a follower of Yathakwa, and he is really into that magic, but this is illegal, and so he's essentially going to get arrested. And because of that, Yathakwa has let him know that bad things are coming. He's given them this special disc that he's mounted onto a wall that if he opens it, it will get him to Saturn. Or, or Sakatosh, is that the name of it? Sakatosh. I like to pretend Cy- this is a 
Cytronach. <laughs> Which sounds a lot like Cytorak in the Marvel Universe, I that's, thought. That's true. Yeah. I'm just going to keep equating things to comic books the on crimson, this episode. The Crimson Bands? The Crimson Bands of Cytorak. I'm the Juggernaut. Uh, so Ibon runs through it, and then so does the lead police investigator that's after him, whose name Morgie. is... What? Morgie? Morgie. And then they go there, and they run into a lot of aliens and have this weird mythological series of adventures where they meet a god and talk to a god and they think that they have a really important message to share from the god <laughs> but it really turns out that the guy the god just told him hey get out of my way you're kind yeah. of in the way be on your way be on your way this is an abbott and costello sword and planet story sort of yeah um as written by cas because at one point they in they ingratiate themselves to some hosts known as the Breghari. Okay, isn't that is that's that a how good, that's a good print? That? Yep, that's it, Breghari. <laughs> and they don't have necks or heads, and then they want to have necks and heads. <laughs> they, yeah, so they're, they're gonna they're just they're gonna torsos. have Ibon. They're so. gonna have Ibon uh, do some sexy times with their their queen aunt essentially. Yeah, she's the size of a a mountain or a house. And they're very charmed by her immense proportions, but not enough that they are willing to have the sexy times with her. And so they escape, meet some other aliens, and then live there forever on this planet. It's very... (laughs) Yeah, they can't get back. Sathagwa tells them, once you go through this door, you can never return. Yeah. It was. I thought it was very mythological. It read to me like any number of Scandinavian myths that I've read through and some free Kindle books. It just had that sort of like dreamy, weird quality where concrete things are happening, but there's no concrete ending and nothing really – important things happen, but it's sort of just presented as – and this is the weird thing that occurred. Very fa- matter of fact. Yeah, the – they run into a variety of really strange alien creatures. One, you know, the, the stranger than the last. What was your favorite of them? Definitely the mother. <laughs> the, the, I find that intriguing. The, Only one female is selected to be reproductive, which is very insectoid. And she's massive and weird. And they feed her and gorge her and so that she can produce an entirely new generation. That's kind of weird and cool. Yeah. And they want they the these this race wants uh Ibon and Morgie's trait of having a head, right? Like they th- they think that it would be nice if their offspring had heads. And I I love that as they're running away from this place, uh whenever they get tired, Ibon will say to Morgie, "Hey, remember the national mother?" and that gives them a little <laughs> extra Vim and vigor to get away. <laughs> but Luke, you kind of in- indicated that maybe this wasn't your favorite thing we've ever read. Uh, I just think that the story itself sort of ends. I mean, right. I like the, uh, the weird peoples we get to meet, but I guess maybe to dial it back, like, like I like the way that the story starts. And as far as there's a, uh, and an, an initiation here of, of Ibon on the run. Right. And we kind of get it from two different perspectives, the way it sort of bops back and forth. Mm -hmm. I like the structure of the, 
of the actual writing here, but I do think that the narrative just sort of falls apart. Like I think, I think the story just sort of ends and it's kind it starts as a story and it ends as a, uh, like a sort of a long form fantastic essay, like of, of Howard's like Hyborian age. Yeah. Kind of, uh, only it becomes less yeah. of a story as it progresses. I definitely yeah. agree with that. Yeah. I've never read like, uh, Gulliver's travels, but it, it strikes me as a, a similar thing, like in that vein, um, where you're getting this description of this weird culture, um, as though it's a travel log, right? right? Like, like it's, it's not necessarily a story. It's here's what we saw in our weird trip. Right. Um, do you think that this is supposed to be a, a satire of sword and sorcery or sword and planet stories? No, I think it's supposed to be like a biblical passage. Almost. It's supposed to be something from the grimoire, that would be written down in it as like maybe the epilogue of, and so you've read the book of Ibon and here is what happened to Ibon. Okay. Okay. Uh, what do you think, Luke? I don't know. It's, it's, uh, it struck me as Clark Ashton Smith throwing big ideas into the, into the kettle and just mm-hmm. stirring it around. I, I guess the, the ridiculousness of the, the fact that, Ibon thinks that he has been given this, this blessed sacred mission from this God that they meet on Saturn. And it turns out to be no more than the God saying, you know, be on your way, uh, was, was kind of farcical. And it, it started striking me that way in the second paragraph where Morgie and his acolytes are, are coming to arrest, um, Ibon and it says that, you know, they can't find him. And it says they were disappointed because the formidable writ of arrest with symbolic flame etched runes on a scroll of human skin was now useless. And because there seemed to be no early prospect of trying out the ingenious agonies, the intricately harrowing ordeals which they had devised for Ibon with such care. Like, I don't know. I read that as being kind of a kind of farcical in a way. Like it, it seemed very tongue in cheek to me. Like they just really want to torture this guy. <laughs> well, yeah, and it's like you know, uh, I don't know. I'm I'm trying to think of like in Monty Python when the Spanish Inquisition want to torture the lady and they they put her in the comfy chair. <laughs> you know, like it's. To me, Morgie and his men were the Spanish Inquisition in this in this scene. But maybe I just read that that way because that's how I wanted to. I don't know. It's it struck me as as being kind of ironic from the beginning, and, and then it got even more um, not really nonsensical, but kind of satirical as it went on. I just wondered if it struck you guys the same way. I, I guess I didn't get satirical tones from it, no. But I can see what you're saying. I'm picking up on what you're laying down. So how does this end? Ibon, like this is basically the uh, this is the uh, exit stage left for Ibon, right? At least mm-hmm. it, on Earth, right? Right, like like the books, right? And then he goes away. And and Morgie too, right? And um, 
just before he leapt through the portal, Morgie told his, his men, don't go anywhere, right? And what do they do, Luke? They, they, sit, they sit tight for some number of days and, 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 and weeks and, and longer periods to the point where uh, ultimately we get a shift in the religion. Like this is, this is my fault with how the story ends because it just wraps up within like a short a paragraph or two of saying there's turmoil and an overall uh, shift in, in the, the, the religious culture of this uh Mu Thulon like like larger sort of world and that's cool. Like it could have ended on a much darker note. And I guess I'm thinking about what's the uh what's the Liber uh story where we get like the thieves liches living under the the uh, in the underworld? Like in that sort of establishing that component the of, the skull yeah. Yeah, like that. Whose house? Thieves house. Yeah, so so in Thieves house, you know, that story ends with Fawford and Mouser sort of uh being part of a larger bit of like like world building and sort of magic taking center stage. Like like the thieves begin to make offerings towards the thieve liches that live in the the underworld of Lankmar, that kind of thing. In this story, there's so much that could be said in even just a few short words that aren't there. Like, we get that there's a shift in religions and things become darker and Sathagwa's uh, sort of, like, worship becomes becomes greater. But what's the importance of that? I don't know. I, and that's – I think that's a sparseness that sort of accompanies the, the sort of essay format. Like, like – Time is immaterial in some of the writing here in that you can spend a good amount of, of prose on stuff that takes hours, and then you can spend the exact same amount of prose on stuff that takes months right. in this story. And so you're jumping across broad expanses of time, and that sort of underscores the, the big picture story that's going on here, but it detracts from the overall sort of like weight of 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 the uh the overall like take home message i think at the end and i think just sort of like inflating it a little bit would have added to it it's interesting because i i i agree i think that it does kind of uh present this neat idea of uh the the decrease in yonde worship and the increase in sathakwa worship as a result of the you know the disappearance of Morgi, who is, I, I guess, the high priest of of Yonde. Right. And we don't get really a sense of why that might matter. Like, is we we know that these Yonde priests are fundamentalists, right? Like they're they're uh, not not even really fundamentalists. They they go beyond that. They're um, zealots. And I don't think it's a lack of effort on the front end of the story that 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 Clark Ashton Smith puts forth. Because I think, I think the front end of the story is far better than the back end of the story. Okay. You get more meaningful sort of world building before they walk through the door to Saturn. Door. <laughs> <laughs> and then after they're in Saturn, it's all cool. But there's not, an, there's not the, uh, the 
denouement or like the uh, the the sort of like epilogue or the final chapter that says this is what really happens on the other side of the door to Saturn. Like you go to Saturn and this is all of the things that play out between Ibon and, and Morgi. Like what happens back home? And and wouldn't it have been cool to to see that hey Yonda worship even though these priests are are extremists. Um, the the world is actually a lot safer than it would be under the chaotic worship of Zathakwa. Yeah. What did you think about Zathakwa as a character in this versus other, you know, elder gods like Cthulhu um, or or even Krom as a literary uh, device or or what have you? He's clearly powerful, but he doesn't seem all powerful. And doesn't seem he's he has a dearth of followers and a dearth of power, but maybe is playing a long game here. Like Ibon is a chess piece for him. I was he, wondering about that as as sort of a subplot. Go on. It maybe he knows that Ibon and and uh, his pursuer will get. I can't remember his name. Mar Mowgli. <laughs> yep, Mowgli. Mar, uh, uh, Morgi. They'll get stuck on Saturn and ultimately result in maybe a, a resurface, a resurfacing of his following and his religion. So he's either way smarter than I first gave him credit for, or he's just kind of there. I don't know. He doesn't seem as, as scary and powerful to me as a Cthulhu does. He's just kind of a froggy alien of Saturn, right? Like he's not necessarily, different is that is that fair to say i think so because you meet someone uh we meet someone on saturn that is obviously well ibon says it's it's sathagwa's paternal uncle but it's like they're they're uh i guess what i'm saying is like they're of equal stature so right. so sathagwa is not singular in his like malevolence or his magnificence he's, he's one of he's one of like a race right it would be like if if you, Luke, went to Mercury, and you were worshipped as an elder god from a far flung planet, yeah. right? Like you're weird there, but back on your home world, there's there's a Josh and a John. That's pretty cosmic in in as far <laughs> as like you know the various uh, elder gods are just aliens from the stars. Like Cthulhu just sort of like came down at some point, or like. You know, it from Derry, Maine, just sort of like blasted on the landscape, and it's been here since the beginning of time. But it's it's just something you can't understand. That's cool. But this story, while it has like a cosmic scope in terms of time, I think doesn't necessarily deliver the cosmic scope in terms of like the severity of of what what that means. Like Ivan, mm-hmm. okay, Ivan's just a dude that's in for some like some sexy sorcerer kicks like he's like and and he's 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 a guy that can talk real real good uh better than morgi mm-hmm. like that's yeah. what i get here uh and that's different than the the ubo sathlaw story that comes along and ibon in this story uh is different than the the trope of the book of ibon would have you believe like, yeah yeah like i agree he, he's a bullshitter yep he has no idea what he's doing, right? Like, 
he doesn't know what these words mean and he doesn't <laughs> he doesn't know what his his quest is supposed to be he's making a lot of this up as he goes which is which is pretty meta in yeah. the grand scheme of like grimoire is the way it's sort of playing out here like that's but that's cool like it gets at the point that uh well we were talking about led zeppelin and 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 media usage like you gotta appreciate the human nature of of Ivan, Ivan's just, just he's just yeah he's just a guy. <laughs> Ivan's got to get paid, <laughs> <laughs> right? Uh, do you guys have final thoughts about the story before we move into Ubosafla? Ubosafla, <laughs> good thoughts. Yeah, I think you said it all there. So we got a a sense of Ibon the character. Right. Now let's get a sense of how the book of Ibon features into Clark Ashton Smith's fiction by exploring the short story Ubo Safla from the July 1933 issue of Weird Tales. Look at you with the dates. I, I jotted it down. <laughs> I wrote that down. I read it on the internet and wrote it on my paper. For Ubosathla is the source and the end, before the coming of Zothakwa, or Yaxothoth, or Cthulhut. From the stars, Ubosathla dwelt in the steaming fins of the new-made earth, a mass without head or members, spawning the gray, formless Fs of the prime and the grisly prototypes of terrene life. And all earthly life, it is told, shall go back at last through the great circle to the time of Ubosathla. The Book of Ibon. Verse, Psalm 23. Chapter 3, verse <laughs> 3. Uh, yeah. We're dealing with the Clark Ashton Smith version of the last universal common ancestor in the story. I got so excited about this story, you guys. UCA, like, dude. The, the biologist in me got really turned on by Ubosafla. So let's talk about why you like that so much then. What is it about this story that really spoke to you? It's, it's the fact that, so this is a conversation that I had with Ashley during uh, dinner earlier, and it's, it's the difference between Ubo Sothla and the story of Genesis. So in Genesis, humans are created special by God and everything else is just kind of there for them, right? It's, it's, right. it's window trappings. It's, it's, but the not dressing. that one tree. Not that one tree. Don't go there. Uh, but everything else, like, give it a name. And by giving it a name, you gain dominion over it. Um, but in Ubosafla, everything is related. You could track your ancestry back far enough that you find the common ancestor between, uh, say, Homo sapiens and uh, Homo erectus. And you go further back back and you find some ancestor of uh, all of apedom. And then you go further back and you find all eukaryotic uh, ancestor, right? The, the ancestor of all eukaryotic life. And you go further back and you find the ancestor, the hypothetical ancestor of all life on planet Earth. And to me, that makes life that much more special. It makes us part of this network of living things that are all interrelated and interconnected from trees to skunks to pterodactyls that are no longer with us to, to everything that has ever been on the planet. Like we're all connected because we're all descended from this last universal common ancestor. 
And uh, I, I just think that is so cool. And it reminded me of uh, uh, Charles Darwin. And I brought up on the origin of species in the first episode of the season as a scientific grimoire. And so there's a quote from on the origin of species from Darwin that says this. Therefore, I should infer from analogy that probably all the organic beings which have ever lived on this earth have descended from some one primordial form into which life was first breathed. And that is, from the uh, Ashtonian view, Ubosophila. That's Genesis. I mean, it's, it, it's heavy to dial it back, no matter what the religion is, to that point. Yeah. And and so that the the fact that we go back to this source to to this progenitor right. in this story really kind of kind of captured my biologist's imagination. If I were to speak about what grabbed me about this story, it was less my biologist fascination and more of my twilight zone fascination. I thought of this as very twilight zone-esque. It had that sort of short snappiness to it. And that sort of be careful what you wish for uh-huh. nature to it as well. We meet a man named Paul Tregardis who finds a crystal in a curio shop, which right. reminds me of some curio shops I've been in here in Omaha. Shout out to all the 402 listeners if you're out there listening in the Cropcast <laughs> land. And uh, the if you 402 the Imaginarium, there's a section where there's just like weird crystals and weird stuff strewn about. And it reminded me of that, but he finds this crystal and he believes that he has read of it mentioned in the book of Ibon. So we're not reading a passage from the book of Ibon, but we are being related to Ubo Sothla, who is apparently described in it. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, I would say so. Like he is, he's the blob, right? He's the blob. And Paul Tregardis starts to look into the crystal and he's essentially pulled into it over the course of a few days and then lives through every lifetime that exists. This connectedness that Josh was mentioning, the fact that everything came from one source and that he gets to live through all of those different iterations. He's different men throughout time. Then he's a beast who makes a nest. Then he's a snake man. Yes, a snake man. At the end, he's a blob who his whole point in doing this was to get to these stones, these sort of like... Ten Commandment type stones, right? Yeah. These the tablets of the, the old gods. They have but, an, anti... Uh, uh, what what does he say? There was a cool term that he used. There lay the mighty tablets of the star-quarried stone that were writ with the inconceivable wisdom of the pre-mundane gods. Pre-mundane, like yeah. That. Yeah. But he cannot appreciate them because at this point... He's gone so far back in time that Paul Tregardis is now a shapeless eft of the prime. He crawls sluggishly and obliviously across the fallen tablets of the gods and fought and ravened blindly with the other spawn of Ubo Sothla. So he's he's devolved into this uh, protoplasmic mass like this. This uh, he's in the primordial soup. Yeah, he he's an amoeba and yeah. he's attained what he wants. He wants access to these tablets, which contain this, uh, uh, wisdom that he wants to learn about, at least according to him. And 
he's got it. He's got what he wants, but he can't do anything with it. It's, it's this wonderful sort of, I, I guess it's not Faustian. It's quixotic. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's right. I mean, it's, it's, it's in that Twilight Zone esque sort of play out. Like, it's what you thought you wanted, but it's not really what you wanted. Right. The, the irony is that you get what you want, but it's, it's actually unattainable. Right. To get there, you have to become something that cannot appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. It's sad in a way. It is sad in a way. But it it captured me because of not not just because of this like biological analog right to the last universal common ancestor, but we get these almost Howardian tropes of of de evolution and the the horror of of you know falling into I'm going to use air quotes here apedom right right. Uh, and we also get reference to the serpent people, right? The the Ophidian humans that once ruled the world that we learned about in uh, Cull. Yep. And the fact that our protagonist, uh, Tregardus, is just gazing into this crystal that he finds in this mystical shop uh, reminded me a great deal of uh, the Cull story, The Mirrors of Tuzanthun. Right. Mm-hmm. And and he eventually does lose himself, unlike uh, Cole. And I, I also liked the you know the mystical shop trope. Like this is where you buy the mogwai, right? Like this is where you Absolutely. get the monkey paw, right? Uh, or this is where you get the the crystal of uh, Ibon. Or or sorry, there was a different wizard, uh, Zon Mesomalic, I guess. Very German. <laughs> Very German. What did you think of the term demiurge? He referred to Ubisofla as a demiurge. Like, it's derivative of demigod, sort of? I guess. I, I read, and and this is very amateur, but I read something that in Gnostic Christianity, the demiurge is the, the aspect of God that created life. I'm seeing that now. In the Platonic, Neo-Pythagorean, uh, and Middle Platonic, schools of philosophy, the Demiurge is an artisan-like figure responsible for fashioning and maintaining the physical universe. Yeah, so it's not the whole of God, but it's some part of God, right? Interesting. Yeah. So, I learned a new word from CAS. (laughs) Word of the day. Thanks, dude. (laughs) Thanks, Clark. He's good for that. No He's very verbose. Uh, Yeah, and he uses really good words. The best (laughs) words. It's the greatest. (laughs) All the best words. All the best. So, at the end of the day, what did you think of the short story Uba Safla? And and, uh, how does the Book of Ibon kind of factor into your equation of of judging the story? Good call. For me, I put this above the door to Saturn. If we're ranking the two stories that we've all three read, uh, it was, I've said Twilight Zone a few times now, but just that whole part about be careful what you wish for or you might get it kind of of story always stick with me for a long time. Uh, the ex machina kind of thing where you think, I, I think about that movie all the time. Like I'll see a toaster <laughs> doing some smart app thing and I think about that movie. 
and I, I think I'll think about this story sometimes. If I ever get what I want, I'll be like, be careful or you'll become like Paul Tregardis where you're just a slug crawling across fallen tablets from the sky. Uh, I definitely dug that over the mythic quality of the door to Saturn. Same here. I think there's a narrative here. I think by the end where Trigardis is lost, it makes sense. It's not just the, uh, that's, that's the end of Ibon and here's what happens to the entire civilization. <laughs> Here we get the end of a person and statements about like, him like very oh, yeah. very personal like of paul Tregardis, all they can say is he also disappeared there was a curt notice in several of the london papers no one seems to have known anything about him he is gone as if he had never been and the crystal presumably is gone too at least no one has found it so i mean that's cool on the the, the level that it pulls in the uh like the relic that we're talking about, but it's also very like uh, Lovecraftian in the way that it's reporting the news. Mm-hmm. Like this person's gone. There's there's nothing else to say. That's very existential. Mm-hmm. And it's it's looking at a a person's life through a cosmic lens, right? Like you're you're seeing the whole picture, but you're focusing in on on our hero. Um, whereas in the previous story, we're, we're trying to see the whole picture of everything and we get Ibon and, and that's somewhat effective, but we don't get, uh, a sense of how that, you know, plays into the context of the greater world. That's a good point, dude. I mean, absolutely. This like brings home the consequence of like what the person's read. Yeah. Analogous to any number of like the, 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 the Lovecraft stories that we've talked about, as well as chambers slash beers. Like yeah. The, the damn thing. Like, like you get the, the final consequence. Yeah. You, you've come in contact with these cosmic things. What happens to you as a person in, uh, as a result of that? Yeah. Don't mess with grimoires, Joe. <laughs> You're right. Yeah. And so that's that's the cool thing for me is is uh, using this book, the book of Ibon, and figuring out how to use this crystal to make yourself unfettered in time, to, to make yourself part of a greater whole uh, of the genetic history of the world. I like how it's night number one. Night number two, mm-hmm. night number three, it just sort of like aggregates and you don't totally like before you know it, you're in a deep hole. Just like the protagonist. Yeah. Like he, he loses more of himself each time and, and yeah. each time he does it, he's like, I'm not going to do this again. Yeah, right. And each, each time, each night he comes back into his study and he sees the crystal and he's like, all right, I can, I can do this. <laughs> one, like One more time. It's fine. What? Yeah. Just what? What's one more time? More hurt. Yeah, one more hit. Yeah. <laughs> I can cool. stop whenever I want. That's right. I'll tell you when I've had enough. <laughs> uh, cool. So so it sounds like we liked Ubo Sofla. For truth. Do, For do we want to talk about the other story that mentions the Book of Ibon just kind of briefly, maybe? I think so. So, John, you and I read it. We did. <laughs> I wrote one sentence uh, descriptions of each of these stories. 
Let's let's start with the door to Saturn. A priest and sorcerer go on a strange adventure in the far-flung world of (laughs) Psychronosh. Saturn. You should work for Netflix. Uh, Uba Safla. Oh, God. Paul Trigardis buys a crystal and with the help of the Book of Ibon uses it to solve an ancient (laughs) mystery, but to his... (laughs) But to his doom. <laughs> Here's Hi, the- I'm Paul Tregardis, and welcome to Crystals and Curios. Hi. Paul Tregardis, class of 93. Uh, how's everybody? Um, my presentation tonight is about the Book of Ibon and this crystal I bought at this weird shop. <laughs> All right. What, what do you say about the coming of the white worm? It, how did you say the main character's name? Uh, Evan. Evan? Okay, I said Eva. Oh, Eva. Eva, yeah. yeah. I didn't, but I didn't know if the GH was supposed to be like a like guttural sound. So I said oh. Eva. The warlock is recruited into the service <laughs> of Relum Shykorth, but for what purpose? Dun, dun, dun. That's a good uh, description. Yeah. It is an entire chapter from the Book of Ibon, The Coming of the White Worm. Chapter nine. Chapter nine. Yeah. Chapter nine, uh, rendered from the old <laughs> French manuscript of Gaspard du Nord, and evidently Gaspard du Nord is a character from one of CAS's previous stories that we have not read yet. Well, what a clever connection to some of his greater fiction. Then. Well, these guys really were pretty savvy with how they connected uh, one another's creations, be it uh, Howard's Black Book or Lovecraft's Necronomicon or CAS's Book of Ibon. Are you saying that perhaps they understood the greater intricacies of building an expanded universe more than some of our modern examples of such a thing? They were into the idea of an expanded universe way before it was cool. Um, and I think they're good about it. They're, they understand the subtleties of it. That's right. Yeah, they they understand that you don't have to – that you can build these thing, these things slowly. John? Yes, sir. I read my synopsis. How would you synopsize this story? How would you summarize it? And how would you sort of uh, collate it into the the previous Ibon mythos? <laughs> the, so, smith, the smithos. Well played. Well played. Um, I would summarize it just shortly as Eva the warlock is a powerful wizard that seems to rule over some fishing people. And they find a boat one day that's got some cursed skeletons on it that cannot be burned. They're frozen. And this is per- they're perhaps a portent of coming doom from the cold Norths. The from, next, the next night. Yes, from beyond where they live, they seem to be island type people. Yeah, seems to be a lot of island type cultures in this story. And then the next night, he awakens, and there's a big iceberg in his harbor. And it's got a giant worm on it. He is transported. Him and his entire house are transported to this place, to this iceberg. And he is turned into a thrall of a uh, worm guy. What are we calling er- him? Erlim Shykorth <laughs> is what I Erlim said. Erlim He is given the ability to breathe the cold air and survive the cold temperatures mm-hmm. as long as he promises to pray to Erlim lots of made up words in these stories that's right and there's a bunch of wizards that get sort of bandied about into this story and they're all supposed to pray to him and they're all kind of like i wonder why he's collecting wizards and just freezing everybody else 
And it turns out that the reason he needs wizards is because they have a delicious nougaty center mm, that helps so, to sustain him <laughs> through long periods of time. They're so tasty. So he eats them, and they are sucked into his. Uh, let's see, what's a good description of him? Rylim uh, Shikor, something he had the semblance of a fat white worm, but his bulk was beyond that of the sea elephant. His half coiled tail was as thick as the middle folds of his body and his front reared upward from the die in the form of a white round disc. And upon it were imprinted vaguely the lineaments of a visage belonging neither to beast of the earth nor ocean creature. And amid the visage, a mouth curved uncleanly from side to side of the disc opening and shutting incessantly on a pale and tongueless, toothless maw. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We get Ibon. It's, it's like filtered through this experience, right? Like right. the experience of, of Iva, the, the warlock, but we get the sense that Ibon is conducting these like oral histories almost of these various uh, wizards throughout the history of his world. Right. And what they know of eldritch sorceries and ancient incantations and, and weird gods from other planes. And Relim Shykorth is one of these elder gods. Like, he's here to bring the end times to human civilization. Right, John? Yeah, he wants to kill everybody and eat the rest. <laughs> How does he relate to... Uh, like Teutonic gods like Odin or uh, even the, the Jotunheimers. Like um, how, how does this guy relate to other mythological beings? I mean, he's the opposite of Odin. Odin is constantly trying to use the people around him to prevent Ragnarok and fight off that kind of destiny seemingly. Whereas this guy, he would be more akin to Surtur. I guess okay. he's bringing the doom. Uh, somebody needs to rise up and stop him from doing this kind of activity. And really, in the end, all that's left is Eva. He is the one who survives being not eaten. He's the last wizard standing, and the ghosts of all the other wizards are like, "Hey, bro. So, like, here's the deal. Uh, he ate us all, and you're the only one that can stab him real good and stop <laughs> this from all happening. But it's going to kill you too." What's that? In order to do to to save us, in order right. to save not only the wizards that were devoured by the worm, but everyone else on the planet, you have to die too. Right. So here's my hypothesis. This state this story is Clark Ashton Smith's statement on Christianity. And Whoa. yeah. And Relim Shykorth is Jehovah. And I, uh, not Ibon, sorry, uh, uh, Eva is Christ. Go on. And in order to to stymie <laughs> the 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 death of everyone on the planet, Eva has to sacrifice himself. He he's a dying god. Eva is. He has to sacrifice himself so that he can save everybody. Like he is. Uh, humanity's only uh, recourse from this this calamity from the stars. What do you think of that? Eva dies for our sins. 
I guess that I see what you're saying. I see that the I see the parallel that you're creating, but I also feel like <laughs> that we're ta- he is not dying for our sins. He's dying for magic's sins. Okay. Like the people of this story are fairly uh unblameable. Like they're just like, yeah, we're fish people, we're fishermen and fisherwomen, okay. Okay. whatever. We're anglers. Yeah. Uh we, we don't care. And then they're the proletariat magic persists around them, so they are caught up in the middle of it. And so that humanity can survive, magic must die almost, which is part partially what he does here. He kills an ancient magical being with no possible, I guess, conciliation prize for magic. Like this guy, this worm guy is just going to die and everything he knows is going to be lost. And now one of the old ones is gone and everything that he could provide us is gone. Yeah. Okay. I was thinking about, uh, what's the, the term for the eternal winner in Norse mythology? Is it thimble winner? Yeah, right, right, right. So this iceberg is bringing Thimble Winter, right? Like, it's killing everybody. And so, to me, this is like... Uh, 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 what's his name? Erlim Shykorth is the personification of this apocalypse. He He is the thing that even the gods can't prevent. Luckily, Eva decides, yes, I will be the savior. And he killed, he cuts the worm and it bleeds this blood that melts the iceberg. And so our hero, Eva, is lost at sea on this iceberg that is melting. And we get a statement from these uh, fishing ships, these vessels that go near the, the giant iceberg, that it melts in a day. Like he has no chance. He's, he's doomed. And so, to me, this is CAS's statement on, uh, I don't know if it's organized religion per se, but it, it definitely has a Christianity bent. Like, this is a criticism of Christianity itself. I feel that. What do you guys think? John, you read the story. Like, am I, I am I going I, way I, too deep into this? I did not think of too much, too much in terms of Christianity when I read this story past the the very uh i don't know kind of on the nose eva is killed to save other people kind of jesus parallel there but i guess the more you talk about it, the more i see what you're saying about rilim shakorth is sort of demonic he is satanic and he's just going around willy-nilly kind of killing stuff Somebody's got to stand up and stop him. So I see that what you're saying there. I would be curious if there's ever a further examination of this in mm-hmm. the the Smithos, as you so eloquently <laughs> called it earlier. Where I don't Eva think I can claim becomes, credit for that. Eva becomes sort of a more Christ-like figure, where he almost instills his own following, where he is. We have Evaism, essentially. Right, versus uh, Limshikorism. Right. I don't know. And and uh, CAS leaves us hanging, right? Like, we we don't know. We do know that humanity is safe from this the, the coming of the white worm. For he now. says, 
Concerning the matters related related above, many and various legends have gone forth throughout Muthulan and all the extreme hyperboreal kingdoms and archipelagos, even to the southmost isle of Ozthor. The truth is not in such tales, for no man has known the truth heretofore. But I, the sorcerer Ibon, calling up through my necromancy the wave-wandering specter of Eva, have learned from him the veritable history of the worm's advent, and I have written it down in my volume with such omissions as are needful for the sparing of mortal weaknesses and sanity. And men will read this record, together with much more of the Elder Lore, in days long after the coming and melting of the Great Glacier. So, in a way, CAS kind of takes our criticisms of the, the previous stories, and he makes this, you know, a... Uh, a cosmic threat that is filtered through this person's experience. So in a way, this story, which was published in uh, stirring science stories in April of 1941, <laughs> takes the, the criticisms that we've kind of levied toward the previous two stories and, and creates a story that addresses those, I think. What do you think, John? I would agree with what you're saying, yeah. So, to, to, to bring this episode to a close, we read three stories that addressed the use of the Book of Ibon as a trope. We know through uh, extensive research that the Book of Ibon was used in other stories, both by H.P. Lovecraft and August Derleth. It, it it extends into uh, our modern times. Like this is still a trope that is used in modern fiction, right? How does the Book of Ibon fit into the overall grimoire milieu, John? I feel like this is more fleshed out, maybe than the last couple of grimoires that we've talked about. Why is that? Um, um, I don't know if it's because we read three stories or if it's because we read an actual excerpt from this grimoire as well as uh, yeah. a story that was inspired by it, maybe a story that preceded it. Well, it seems it yeah. seems like we've got more of a story about this grimoire than we have the Necronomicon and etc. I would add that we have not just the grimoire, but a direct story with the author of the grimoire as a primary character, like Ibon, Ibon is the main character in the door to Saturn. We don't have the same sort of story for say, whoever pinned the King in yellow or, uh, Abdul Alhazred from, from Lovecraft. Like we don't have that, but from CAS's, typewriter or pen or whatever we have uh ibon's direct experience we have someone interpreting ibon and then we have a manuscript as it's translated from ibon like like we have three different perspectives from the same author and i think that gives us a more holistic view of what this grimoire means to the the fiction fictional milieu of of cas 
And I think that makes it more fully fleshed out, at least in my mind. For me, this was easier to understand the Book of Ibon than it was the Necronomicon or uh, uh, the, the King in Yellow and all that kind of stuff. That being said, I don't know if that detracts from its grimoireiness or not. Yeah. What do you think about that? Well, I so let me put it this way. Um, I've read at this point on the origin of species. I've read pieces about on the origin of species. And I've read Darwin's um, journals from his voyage on the Beagle. And so to me, that's that's a similar sort of thing that, you know, the the um, the coming of the white worm is like the the Darwin uh, 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 beagle story. So it's a firsthand account. The on the origin of species is like reading um you know the right and and so you you get the sense of who the author is along with what the context of their uh of their their writing is right and so those i think are two different things like um not only do you get the the philosophy of the author but you get where this fits into the historical context you get context. And so to me, this uh, book of Ibon thus far is the more complete and holistic grimoire. Like the, the Necron- Necronomicon might be the, the Ur grimoire for pulps, but it seems like the book of Ibon is the more realized version. And that may be, a factor of, of CAS living a longer life than, than either Robert E. Howard or, uh, HP Lovecraft. I don't know, but I, I do think that, that these three stories would be, uh, a wonderful first three chapters in a book that sort of encapsulates this, uh, grimoire in particular. John, Joshua, tell us where you can find the Chromecast. <laughs> tell us, tell, tell us, just tell us. You can find the Chromecast at thechromecast.blogspot.com. You can call us at 859-429-CROM. You can email us thechromecast at gmail.com. And you can always find us on Twitter at thechromecast or on Facebook at facebook.com slash the Chromecast. We'd love to hear from our listeners and we hope that you're enjoying the grimoire season so far. Go team. Okay. Let's stop and I will.